everywhere we turn, it seems that there's some new kind of controversy that is being talked about, people fretting about, wringing their hands about, fighting about, posting things online, whatever, right? We live in a contentious time. And, you know, sometimes I wonder if we could go back 200 years, would we feel the exact same way about the current state of affairs that that we see around us? Or would, would people truly be more peaceful and blissful? I don't know. You look at things like uh, the bubonic plague, uh, the uh, Western expansion here in the United States. There's always been something going on that has been a big deal and people have gotten bent out of shape over. And sadly, you know, even cases where lives have been lost and great suffering, right? So I don't think that our time now is any less perfect than it probably has ever been, right? But we do see where a lot of the conflict that comes out of this controversy kind of grows around these social issues. And, and uh, of course, that ties up into politics and everything else. But uh, you often wonder, who are the people that aren't just posting about this, that aren't just arguing with their brother-in-law about it uh, around the Thanksgiving table? Who are the people that are in the trenches kind of slugging it out, making things, keeping the boat afloat, right? Who are those people that have to that have to deal with all of this baggage? And they are the real heroes. <laughs> they are the they are the people that that uh, don't worry so much about getting their feelings hurt or uh, what people think of their opinion. They just know that they got to follow what they think is right and uh, do the next best thing. And we are talking to such a hero today, in my opinion, anyways. And that would be Mr. Carter Niemeyer, who, by the way, is also a fellow native Iowan. Or I think in your book, Carter, in your book, Wolfer, I think you used the term, and I have borrowed this many times after I heard it, by the way, Iowegian is what you, is what you went by. <laughs> yeah, Iowegian is what I got labeled to and I came out west. <laughs> Yeah, I love that one. I, I used that one on my father-in-law once, who's from New Hampshire, and he thought he got a good kick out of that. So I've definitely adopted the Iowegian uh, terminology there. But uh, grew up in Garner, Iowa, if I remember correctly, from your book. Is that correct? That is correct. Garner, Hancock County, Iowa. Okay. And uh, is that up near kind of Clear Lake, Mason City area? You're very close, uh, just about 12 miles west of Clear Lake and 20, 22 miles west of Mason City. Okay. At the junction of Highways 18 and, and Highway 69, which are a couple of big arteries up in that area. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's a unique area from a uh, wildlife standpoint, too, because Clear Lake, that I believe that's a naturally formed lake, isn't it? Yes. And yep. one of the few in our state, most most lakes you come across here in uh, Iowa are man-made reservoirs. And uh, uh, we actually live right right near the biggest man-made reservoir in the state, good old uh, Red Rock. But um, uh, it is it is great to be talking with a fellow Iowan, somebody who's got, or Iowegian, I should say, somebody who's got those shared uh, values when it comes to wanting to see the state do well in all in all aspects, but most particularly nearest and dearest to 
to our hearts at least, and I assume the same for Carter, is from a natural standpoint. How do we take care of the land that we live on and uh, how do we how do we make you know some put together a picture that makes sense for everybody, farmers, landowners, and just uh, everyday citizens that, that want to take in what our landscape has to offer. So what, uh, when you were growing up in Iowa, I, I often ask this question of uh, people that have uh, come before me and had, you know, like, so for instance, my, my mom will be like, mom, what was the, what was the landscape like when you were a kid? What kind of animals do you remember seeing running around? And then I'll ask my grandfather who, who actually up until last year was living in the, the same house, was sleeping in the room he was born in, <laughs> stayed on the same ground for 84 years. And what, what I often get is, uh, I don't really remember. And it, I think that comes from the fact that they aren't people that necessarily are wired to think about those such things, right? But uh, Carter, I figured that'd be a pretty good question to start out with for you is, what was Iowa like from a natural standpoint? What, what was the landscape like when you were growing up as a, as a young kid? Well, Iowa, I didn't know any better at the time. It was the only country I laid eyes on for an early part of my life. And uh, it seemed endless and boundless. We uh, lived right on the east edge of my hometown and we had a little farm ourselves. So you could just take off walking and it was you know, pretty much a monocultures then of corn and soybeans, but there was oats and hay ground and mm. you know, more diversity, I think, in the crops then than, than of course now. And uh, a lot more farm groves, uh, a lot more wildlife habitat, absolutely. Mm. There were the pesticides, herbicides, insecticides, those types of, uh, Chemicals, I don't think, were dominating the landscape when I was a kid. So uh, when they harvested corn, especially, there was always lots of residue, lots of foxtail, lots of mm -hmm. uh, other plant life, which left a lot of ground cover, which uh, at the time provided for an abundance of cottontail rabbits, jackrabbits. I hear my friends tell me these days they seldom see one. Uh, we had them by the hundreds when wow. I was, and of course, I think we were harvesting uh, probably into like a million ringneck pheasants a year or something like that. Oh, it was wow. phenomenal, uh, pheasant numbers at that time. Uh, and in contrast, you know, going back today, most what I enjoyed as a kid hunting and trapping in Iowa is gone. You know, farm groves have diminished a lot. The uh, fence rows more gone. Uh, you know, board piles, rock piles, groves full of fallen trees. All that was excellent wildlife habitat. So uh, I notice the contrast severely when I go back now that mm. a lot of farms, even they have a riding lawnmower and they're mowing the grass along the driveway and around the, uh, what remains of the farm grove. But on a bright note, when I was growing up, a white-tailed deer and uh, coyotes and bobcats were almost non-existent mm. in wow. North Iowa. I hunted 23 years uh, for predators like fox, 
and a coyote if you found one. There was never a coyote track that I laid eyes on in the 23 years I lived wow. in North Now I have friends hunting them, and uh, those kind of animals are abundant up in that area. Yeah, for sure. Now, that is, man, that is such a good picture to that you painted there for us, and and that's the exact answer I've always wanted whenever I've asked this question, so I'm glad I asked it. Now, I, I want to go a little bit deeper here. I, If I remember correctly, there was at least a time in your growing up years, I think this was in the early part of the book, Wolfer, and we'll tell, you, we'll tell our audience here how they can find your books uh, at the end of the show, but you did live on a farm or at least out in the countryside for a while, didn't you, growing up? Well, we lived right on the east, east edge of, of Garner, and uh, we had property across the road was kind of where our farm was. Um, my grandmother lived across the street, uh, so the house didn't set with the buildings. But across the road, there was four acres of, uh, you know, the chicken house, the hen house, the feed feed shed, uh, place where we parked. We had a couple of Alice Chalmer tractors. So it was mm -hmm. just like a half a city block walk and and you were in the middle of chickens geese sheep and whatever else we had there hmm. so so that so i was yeah. gonna i was gonna ask you then has that spot specifically with all the change that's happened that you mentioned in iowa has that spot totally changed since you were a kid i'm very sad to say where, where my house stood that i grew up in which was darn near 100 years old you know when they my parents moved in there with me there's storage uh, facilities there now, those storage uh, rods hmm. sit where my house stood. And of course, across the road, um, the four acres of trees, buildings, board piles, and other habitat, I guess you say, it's all been uh, destroyed. And, and now it's either corn or soybeans, depending mm -hmm. on what cycle you return to see. That's, that's the story right now and i know uh for a long time there was a lot of corn and soybeans i mean you even talked about when you were a kid but then uh dad talks about corn hitting three dollars in the 80s per bushel and he said everyone went mad he said that they stripped up every every ounce of grass every cow pasture they could find farming the roughest stuff pulling out trees uh, just farming as much corn as they could and then of course we know that led to a crash uh, of corn. And then my dad and other people, they were paid by the government just to store it because they didn't know what to do with all the corn. And and uh, and while there was already a lot of corn and soybeans in the 80s, and then again in, what was it, 2006 with mm -hmm. ethanol? Yep, that's uh, mandates. Just, you know, just exponential. And now Iowa uh, is a little bit of hearsay, but from my understanding is the most terraformed place on earth for its size. There's no place that's been more changed than Iowa. Uh, and that is, is kind of strange to think about when you think of Iowa, you think of something more natural, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. And then another, uh, topic we never mentioned too is, is when I was a kid and a young man hunting around that country, we had a lot of, uh, still natural pothole country and, and, uh, wetlands. Oh, for, okay. Sure. And, North Iowa is renowned for its tile they put in. Mm. And uh, unless the DNR acquired some of those properties, which they have very little property, but yeah. 
the only salvation for any of those wetlands was if the DNR was able to obtain them. And those are few and far between. Otherwise, uh, beautiful wetland region of uh, North America has pretty much uh, been drained and made into cropland. Yeah, yeah, that is a really important part of this to consider as well. And, and you know, it's you can get kind of depressed when you start talking about this. And we're going to talk about some victories that have come along, and Carter's played a key role in that. But uh, it, it sets up well to really explain where we are today. I love that you mentioned the jackrabbit side of it because I love to ask people about, hey, even even our founder here, Carol Hawksberg, and I asked him uh, about a week ago or so, hey, do you ever remember there being many jackrabbits around here? And he kind of had the same answer you did, Carter, where, oh, I remember a time when there was jackrabbits all over the place. And uh, they're, they're all but uh, gone here in Iowa now. Um, uh, you, you might see one on occasion around this area, um, uh, but you're going to be the only person you know that's seen one. And uh, um, you can kind of go up to northwest Iowa and, and find some. But uh, that, as I've learned from talking with the state upland biologist, is a direct correlation to those changes that Carter mentioned uh, that, that's happened with land use practice. And... Mm. Um, uh, you know, that, that kind of serves as our perfect transition point that we're going to be moving into is, you know, obviously Hoxie Native Seeds, the presenting sponsor for this podcast, is we're about the grassland, right? We're about the flora side of the landscape. But there's this whole other side, the wildlife side, the fauna of an ecosystem that is wrapped into that circle, and is affected by it and does affect the uh, uh, the whole ecosystem. And that's really where Carter specialized within his career is working with wildlife. And uh, uh, I, I guess I'd kind of like to jump to that direction, except for this. If you read Carter's book, Wolfer, you'll hear how he kind of gets his his transition moment to go west had to do with the trapping that you were learning to do while you were still in Iowa. Now, did you start doing that trapping when you were in college, Carter, or is that were you trapping a lot of critters before uh, college? Well, I started out trapping pocket gophers when I was nine years old. Some <laughs> of these little guys, and yeah, and they were a, kind of a headache for farmers. They uh, you no, know, the less modern sickle bars back then would plow into a pocket gopher mound and plug up the sickle. And so uh, my dad showed me these little guys. And of course, they live underground their whole life. So most people wouldn't know what a pocket gopher is. Sure. Unless you pulled one out and showed them. And so, yeah, I started out with pocket gophers, got my 10 cent bounty on them at the courthouse, which, you know, was my incentive to make some spending money when I was a little kid. <laughs> yeah. And then the farmers paid me 50 cents a piece when I got old enough to get around either on a bicycle or, or a old 54 Chevy car. And, <laughs> and of course, trapped muskrat, mink, uh, the things that were real common at that time. And then by the time I was a senior in high school, I started, uh, started working with the biologists over at Clear Lake, actually. I got to know them and... Uh, I was kind of an amateur taxidermist, so taxidermy kind of brought us all together. And okay. so they gave me summer jobs to uh, work around the area looking at 
nesting habitat of pheasants and, and all of that as it was related to farming practices. And then I got to work on a fox study up there. And I've always wanted, you know, I hunted foxes, didn't have much luck at it. Learned to catch foxes when I was about a senior in high school or just started junior college. Uh, so that helped me, I guess, get that interest in catching canine predators. And, and of course, based on that and, and moving forward in my life, I became an expert at that and sure. uh, really followed up. I had a really great teacher, probably one of the greatest fox trappers in North Iowa that lived down by Randall, which was just north of Ames. Hmm. And he showed me the inside secrets, which really made me much more effective. And that, that was the beginning of my trapping, uh, kind of moving away from muskrats and totally moving away from pocket gophers and, you know, chasing the wily red fox. Yeah. Yeah. What are, what are, what are some of those secrets? I, I'm curious. Well, um, when you're talking trapping, you know, the old saying is location, location, location. Uh, you've got to know where these animals travel, know their habits. Uh, and once you find these travel corridors that they uh, visit uh, routinely as part of their, you know, evening daily life, where they urinate and lay down their scent and mark their territories, once you get on to all that social uh, uh, communications going on there and you be kind of become a fox yourself and you just go out and find those spots mimic uh, the scent and the urine and all that good stuff except there's a trap there waiting for a fox when he visits yeah hmm. that is that that was one of my favorite parts of the book and i think i like it so much because you explain that relationship that you had with the guy who kind of at first didn't really want to be your teacher. Uh, if I remember the story correctly, it's kind of, he kind of almost viewed you as competition or being in his way. Uh, and did, I can't remember in the book if, did he ever kind of come around and acknowledge the fact that you had really become a skilled trapper under his training? Yeah, well, he insisted on perfection for me, so I, I had a tough teacher. I always said he was kind of like a Marine Corps drill sergeant. I mean, <laughs> he accept mediocrity, and and then, you know, he, he kind of got fed up with the uh, Iowa scene, the encroachment that he was a farmer, too. I mean, that's what he did for a living. Sure. Just trapping and things like that. He just got into more and more conflict with people everywhere he went. So, you know, he moved out to Montana and uh, I kept in touch with him. And, and eventually, you can almost say I followed in his footsteps um, and ended up in Montana and we reunited out there. Uh, and yeah, I think he uh, would have given me an A for my uh, abilities, my effort and, and my persistence. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Matt. And I forgot about that little wrinkle there. It's been a while since I've read your book, but... But uh, yeah, that's that, that's really cool that you're able to meet up with him again. And, and let's start transitioning there. So when you went to Montana, I think uh, in the book, your first job was to trap skunks. Is that correct? Yeah, and the connection there is that I went on to Iowa State University and got uh, my bachelor's and master's degrees in wildlife biology because that's I right. 
imagine me doing anything else in life than be a biologist. And, <laughs> and what I worked on it on my master's thesis was a research project on North Iowa mammals uh, with emphasis on striped skunks looking at a serological study of rabies. So I tra uh, okay. used my trap skills, uh, live trapping in this case, and marked, captured and marked hundreds of skunks, possums, raccoons, uh, and some other species we caught and then looked at the serological uh, uh, evidence if they'd been exposed to rabies. And so I won't belabor that, but uh, anyway, I, I did my master's wrote it up and then uh, as a result in Montana they had an out rabies outbreak in northeast Montana and we're looking for someone with that expertise uh, with a wildlife background and so this is where I was offered a job and, and took it. Wow well I mean for someone that spent their whole life in Iowa was that was that really a kind of a scary step to all of a sudden go from the classroom out to heading west into totally new territory and putting everything you've been working on to to uh i guess to the test well, it was kind of i felt almost like i died and went to heaven because I <laughs> in montana i hadn't even hardly heard of montana really you know i never thought about it and sure and when i got out there and especially up in the northeast corner there were similarities, you know, it was ag country, real open prairie, uh, mm -hmm. like little house on the prairie type scene and yeah. a lot of, uh, miles and miles of rolling wheat fields, far as you could see, right on up into Canada and over into North Dakota. But on, in similarities to the Midwest was, it was kind of like going back to the pothole country and going back mm. to the way things were um, probably a hundred years before Iowa when I was born because everywhere I was up in that uh, northeast part of the state there was just natural potholes and I even started asking the farmers I, when I met them up there I says uh, any chance I can hunt some ducks this fall and they just looked at me real puzzled and they go well sure why wouldn't you uh, and I told them about <laughs> chasing ducks around Iowa shooting them off of uh, drainage ditches and and the real limited water supply we had and, uh, they were astounded but yeah up there they didn't carry you could go anywhere you wanted and there's just wow. a thousand square miles of wide open space and uh, that fit the bill for me wow that's awesome so that if i remember correctly uh that was kind of a temporary job right that it was a special project and eventually though that job opened up a door into a more permanent position with a uh, government, a federal government agency that works under uh, the Department of Agriculture that's had a couple name changes, right? Animal Damage Control was, was that the, was that the old name for that? Uh, yeah, a Animal Damage Control ADC was the uh, original uh, well, it was one of several names. Uh, the names changed multiple times in history. And when I went to work for it, it was under the U.S. Uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, under the interior, actually. Okay. Then it uh, eventually changed to Wildlife Services under the U.S. Department of Agriculture. But uh, the jobs were all federal and, and uh, not well, state. 
And I've also heard the term APHIS used with along with wildlife services. What is what is that? Is that just a special funding program or uh, uh, another program underneath wildlife services, or is that another synonymous term for wildlife services? Well, it's APHIS Wildlife Services, so oh, okay. Animal Plant Health Inspection Service. So, uh, wildlife services are, is one of many. Uh, departments or whatever you want to call them under uh, APHIS. Okay, that makes sense. So it's yeah. kind of our title. Sure, that makes sense. Okay, so yeah, let's let's get to that point there because I remember you kind of explained um, the old mentality that, that existed within animal damage control. It was kind of just predator management right when when you first got in there was a lot of effort put on on uh you know uh keeping down coyote numbers or or uh anything that could be damaging to to livestock is that is that an accurate memory of mine yeah and uh originally uh animal damage control was involved in a lot of rodent control too okay rodents and predators and in 1972, I mean, I'm, there's so much to talk about, I'll try and narrow it down, but in sure. <laughs> under the Nixon administration, um, there was a reduction of and a, a banning of many, many toxicants to kill various critters. And one of them was the rodenticides and uh, some of the predicides, which included strychnine, 1080, thallium, very, very uh, poisonous. Uh, materials and and were they banned because of what they were doing to the surrounding area or because it was wiping out the population of these creatures too much or, or what was going on there well the it, there's so much secondary poisoning uh, you know during the early settlement of the country the idea was uh, let's clear the land and and let's use it you know so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. rodents coyotes bears lions you name wolves anything in the way you killed them, and toxicants were one of those methods, uh, like strychnine. There was no real concern of the effects it had, but by the 1970s, it was obvious, you know, that uh, if a ground squirrel ate poison and an eagle ate the ground squirrel, the eagle died uh, of a coyote. And then if something ate the stomach out of the coyote, you could even get a third species, you know, like... Uh, your crows, ravens, magpies. So, I mean, it was just a, hmm. a stepping effect where it was moving up the line and, and just non-select. Hmm. It was a, to me, it was a great move that these toxicants were minimized, reduced, and uh, some remain, but uh, nothing with that uh, ability to kill, like say strychnine did. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can you kind of explain how? Uh, that strychnine was used. Uh, what was kind of the tactic used to, to say if you wanted to wipe out a few coyotes in an area, what would what would a government trapper do at that at that time? Well, they they built a large kind of a lard tablet, you want to call them. I mean, it's just like suet. Uh, get a bunch okay, of yep. fatty material, and then you sprinkle in the strychnine powder and then you put them in like a board where it would dry in, into a little cube and 
you can make thousands of them and they're just mm -hmm. say just deadly mm -hmm. so that was one one application then there's a sodium cyanide which is a, another one i didn't mention but that was in the form of a, a coyote getter which was a unit a metal unit that you put a cartridge about the size of a 45 caliber or a 38 caliber inside of this uh, coyote getter. And when the coyote pulled on it, when he, there was some stinky scent that attracted him, it would shoot the powder in its mouth and it killed them very mm. quick. The wow. nice sodium cyanide wasn't, it didn't have that secondary poisoning effect like strychnine and some of the other uh, chemicals. So they had all these different delivery systems to uh, get it to the animals they were trying to kill. And, uh, and I just say that, you know, time I went to work, I didn't really have to work on rodents anymore because there was really not many tools left uh, for animal damage control to worry about killing all the uh, pocket gophers and porcupines and everything else that uh, were targeted. So uh, when I got there, it was mainly the coyote was the target for control. And at that time, to replace the poison, they were going more and more to aerial hunting using fixed wing aircraft and helicopters because they had to figure a way to still massively kill animals effectively as they could. And so when you take away the poison, they went to the air. Yeah, can, that is a fascinating part from the book. Can you tell us what one of those aerial missions for you guys looked like when you would go on those aerial hunts? Well, you got to understand aerial hunting, uh, there's nothing fair about it. And mm -hmm. when you get a very capable pilot and a very capable gunner teamed up, uh, they could kill 60, 70, 100 coyotes in a, in a morning. Man, wow. A couple of times, uh, you know, where you had a high density of coyotes. Uh, it's very effective, same with a helicopter. And uh, so you do that during the summer months in response to coyotes say killing people's sheep but then in the winter time just about every flyable aircraft in montana was on contract to hunt coyotes on the snow because uh, you get a six eight inch fresh snow and give it a day or two and the sun come out you could literally kill hundreds of coyotes a day from the air wow these animals wow. had virtually no chance uh, most of the country where the fixed wings flew there's no tree cover just wide open mm -hmm. and uh, in the rougher terrain in western montana you went to the helicopters but these animals couldn't outrun it they couldn't hide from it um, very rarely did an animal survive so deadly deadly effective and uh, you know, i guess few rancher and wanted them dead we got the job done and uh, i gotta tell you you know you feel sorry for those guys because you you see a coyote running out there once you got your eyes on him he, he, he's as good as gone hmm. so you're saying these animals what what are a few of the species that took the heaviest hit on their population through this uh, uh through this method well the aerial hunting was targeting coyotes mainly okay. red foxes were shot incidentally uh when i first went to work bobcats were killed incidentally mm. uh, restrictions tightened as the years went by 
where most of that aerial gunning was directed totally at, at uh, coyotes. You know, we had mountain lions, black bear, grizzly bears, animals like that. Uh, those were caught using uh, you know, like uh, bear and lions, using hounds. Uh, you could trap some of them with foothold traps and then the grizzly bears, we used foot snares to catch them, but uh, we couldn't use aircraft to hunt those large predators. That was okay. Now, now we're, so if somebody was a, a gunner, what they were they using like a shotgun and get real low to the ground in the helicopter or were you guys using rifles mainly? Uh, during my entire tenure with the government, uh, no rifles were fired. Uh, you got to understand, you know, these high velocity bullets hitting the ground uh, in a lot of that country's got a lot of rock and yeah, that's true. Any rock even. And you always had to worry about ricochets and bullets hitting hard surface and bouncing back up and taking out your props. Yeah, right. Or, you know, killing the pilot or something. So uh, we used standard equipment was usually a automatic 12 gauge shotgun hmm. and shooting BB loads. Um, that load is, uh, if you took the pellets out, they're about the size, they're identical to the size that go in a kid's BB gun. Oh, okay. wow. Wow. And then, you know, they were all pretty much all lead pellets at the time. And then we went to Lubaloy, which was a copper coated pellet. And uh, see, there's concern today, of course, now too, shooting these animals with uh, lead shot mm. because it's toxic to eagles. And uh, when you kill a coyote and you don't pick it up, the birds consume the pellet there. And then you got another chain reaction of, of yeah. toxicity too. Yeah. Man, what a what a wild time! I mean, it, it really seemed like it was all out war on on predators. And and what where did that mentality come from? Was it just that that old mentality of settling, you know, new country? Like you said, we got to clear the land, make way for our new way of life, or was it all in response to rancher comes out, sees he's got a couple dead sheep in the morning, gives you guys a call. What was really seemed to be the thing that was driving this uh, this effort? Well, working for animal damage control, wildlife services, whatever you wanted to call them. I mean, uh, as I state in my book, we were the hired gun of the livestock industry. Mm. We were federal employees, but um, wildlife services have lots of political friends in high places. Congress has been, always been very supportive. And all your agricultural uh, industry, from you name Farm Bureau, uh, about anything rural related, are very friendly to the services that wildlife services provide. And the years that I, when I went to work, it was still pretty much old school. Um, ranchers expected it, and it was a component of ranching that uh, you could count on. If you had something die and you thought a predator killed it, you phoned up wildlife services. Uh, the government trapper would go out, look at it, decide if it was a kill or not. And um, you signed a landowner permit. Landowners were very happy to sign it. In fact, they often, there were check boxes. Uh, do you want your badgers killed? Yes. Do you want your porcupines killed? Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. 
pretty much kill anything you encounter. Uh, and that was the mentality that uh, in, in my work environment, and, and it was this, uh, you know, since settlement, the, you know, wildlife was there when, when early ex explorers uh, found them. And then, uh, you know, the cattlemen come in and the farmers come in and they brought with them cattle, sheep, horses, llamas, whatever other kinds of livestock, which kind of replaced the native wildlife yeah. and the government facilitated your success in agriculture by providing this service to uh, anything that you know cuts into your economic survival will be there to help you and it's still that way today uh, it's still really western out west uh, when it comes to uh, government trappers killing predators uh, in behalf of the livestock industry and and then you know a modern offshoot of that is that uh, wildlife services involved in safety at, at international national airports around the mm. country around the world uh, helping keep geese and, and birds and animals off the runway and birds flying in front of aircraft so even then today they have to kill birds to keep you safe on your jet liner. It Not almost like this is working there. It almost the story you're saying about wildlife and about different species uh, is almost a copy and paste story of corn and soybeans, right? So there, there's an all-out war on anything in fields, eat what native or not, uh, mm -hmm. that isn't corn or soybeans. Because it economically gets in the way of, of livelihoods, and, uh, um, and and that's a story that we that's we hear point. so much. But then you were talking about it, but from a uh, um, you know a, a little more living organism in, in terms of uh, these uh, wild animals that are running around, which is <laughs> a little bit different to take care of those, but but still a very similar story where um, and. Uh, Man wants to subdue the land, yes, essentially. and no one wants to conserve any of it. And it's pest control. You know, a pest, yeah. a pest can be anything. I mean, I think sometimes humans are a pest. Yeah, <laughs> my little brother. <laughs> you got a, if you got corn growing in your soybean field, that corn is a pest, and yeah. vice versa. Yeah. You know, so you're out. Uh, when I when I was a young man, I I used to hoe beans and hoe the corn and kill out anything that wasn't supposed to be in there was a pest. Same with the, uh, you know, inse insects. If they get aphids on a soybean field now, you spray the aphids. So um, I've changed a lot. I mean, my attitude anymore is I don't kill anything. We, we run bird feeders and, and my wife and I, we love all wild creatures because it just seems that with human encroachment and this intense agriculture we have, everything has become a pest. Yeah, and yeah. It's you know the unfortunate part is a lot of a lot of and many of these pests are native. Mm, they yeah. were here when we showed up. That's right. They were here before we showed up. Yeah. So um, I I I am very uncomfortable with the way that. Uh, we treat the landscape anymore, and especially 
there's so much humanity out there and, and the open space we have, we better cherish it because mm. I mean, it's vital to the survival of all the diverse uh, animals, insects, birds, fish, whatever. And we're part of that. We aren't separate. We aren't some special, I don't look at us as some special species above and beyond and outside of all this. I mean, what we're doing to the things around us, uh, we're doing to ourselves. Yeah. yeah, that's a good way to say it. Yeah, before we transition here to, to where your career has really a, a total flip and kind of puts you in a really, you know, tough spot to work, um, I, I want to get maybe one more good story from your, your days there working with wildlife services. And if I remember correctly, there's a story about a problem grizzly that you guys had to uh, kind of camp out for several nights trying to catch into a big, uh, was it a culvert trap or something like that that you, you were trying Brother, to Brother, you're going to give some spoilers, man. I, it's just, <laughs> it's a great story. Would you mind sharing that one? Well, I'm not sure which one I finally settled on. Uh, for 16 years of my career, when I moved over into the western part of the state in Helena, uh, I worked on grizzly control. Um, and never killed a grizzly in my career, hmm. but we caught a lot of them. And we used foot snares. Okay. We used the foot snare to catch the bear, which was uh, basically quarter quarter inch aircraft cable type stuff with uh, that had a slide, and and we built them ourselves. And uh, then we, once we caught them in a foot snare, we'd shoot them with a dart gun to immobilize them with a chemical and then put them in a culvert trap to drive okay. them around. Uh, and when I say drive them around, I mean drive them around one or two or three mountain ranges and release them in a other part of the state where we hope they would, you know, stay out of trouble. But um, I'm, I'm full of grizzly bear stories and the, and the bottom line, I'm not sure which one you might be referring to and I'm not sure which I had so many to write about. Sure. <laughs> Any of them. Man, grizzly bears are such a, I mean, the creatures themselves are crazy. They're huge. They're intelligent. They're ferocious, but they're, they've got kind of a strange demeanor to them, but a kind of like bubbly demeanor. Uh, I, any story about a grizzly bear is exciting to me. <laughs> well, the, the thing with the, most of the grizzly bear problems that I was involved in, it, it revolved around domestic sheep. Okay. Uh, the sheep are on private land, but very often in the summer, about mid-June, uh, there's a lot of public grazing allotments where the bands of sheep are, are driven up onto the national forests or onto Bureau of Land Management properties, uh, all owned by the federal government, all owned by you. I mean, they're, they're yep. kind of treasure for the whole uh, national public. And uh, when you move this livestock, especially sheep, not picking on them, I mean, they're a nice little critter, but they're noisy, they're loud, and they blat, and they smell, and they leave lots of sheep pellets. Uh, and it's an attraction. It's just a moving 2,500 sheep moving through the forest. Yeah. The bears, the lions, the wolves, the coyotes, everything hears them, sees them, smells them, knows where they are and they're a, a, an attraction. So uh, it's mm. essential that you have herders. Most time are just one, but there should be multiple people with them. 
and guard dogs. But a lot of times, uh, you know, in case of a grizzly bear, they, they get in them sheep on the bed ground in the night and they may kill 60 or 70. They may bite them, wow. chase them down the mountain, they stampede them, they pile them up. I've seen sheep impaled on uh, lodgepole pine trees, you know, down. Wow. They're just like big jish kebabs hanging out there five feet off the ground. And then our job was to go in and, and you know, examine, investigate these uh, uh, events. If the grizzly bear was the problem, when we used to put snares, set them, I usually used to pile a dead sheep to attract him and try to outsmart him, get him step in this snare, catch him by the front leg. And then uh, in the morning, very often you drive out there, right? That's, beginning of daylight and when you hear this horrible sound coming from the timber up above uh, sound like a Hereford bull that's in really having a bad day up there you know covering <laughs> timber cracking uh, you got yourself maybe four or five hundred pound grizzly bear on the <laughs> what was that like walking up on your first your first grizzly in a foot snare it's well, got to be horrifying <laughs> With most other species, you didn't worry about packing a gun, but with grizzly bears, uh, we never ever had to shoot one, you know, because of something going bad that way. But you were, you had to be smart and be cautious and careful and approach and establish, you know, how is it caught? How well is it caught before you go walking up the distance? <laughs> my job was with the dart gun. And uh, yeah, you have a three, four, five hundred pound grizzly come running at you, and and that only thing on him is this little cable. Oh, I've had him do those somersaults, you know, right in front of me, and and you, a lot of times you have backup, you know, other people are standing behind you to, with guns in case. Because my dart gun, you know, I might as well have a. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Would do for you. And uh, it's funny when one of them comes charging out, the tendency is always to run. And oh, I bet I've turned to run, and the guys I've had six guys with guns behind me, and they're already down the mountain. <laughs> start on me, and, but you know, all getting aside, um, the people I work with, we were careful and, and took it step by step, and uh, caught a lot of grizzlies, moved a lot of grizzlies, gave them a second chance, and took them to a different area. Uh, all to try to help these Purdue livestock guys get through the grazing season with the least amount of loss. Yeah. And could it take many days to catch a grizzly or were they, uh, was it, were they usually a pretty quick catch after you established that's what, that's who was guilty of the crime and you set up your bait station and everything? Well, it's, it's a good question. Normally, um, you had to find as many of the dead sheep as you could and, and haul them away and get them out of there and then use three or four uh, left behind for bait. But it, you, it was absolutely expected the bear would come back that night to eat because they, they've got a big appetite. So, so was, why are, sorry, uh, why are they leaving tons of dead sheep? Well, they, they come in to kill a sheep and the disturbance or the bear, um, 
it's called surplus killing. It happens if you get a weasel in a hen house, a mm-hmm. weasel might kill 25 or 50 chickens in one night and all he wants to do is eat the head and the brains off of one. So they don't count. They just kind of get up, caught up in the, uh, you know, the adrenaline yeah. rush. And then a lot of the other uh, collateral damage is like, say, the stampeding, the suffocating, the getting impaled on branches and things. So the bear, unique with bears too, you know, they like fresh meat, but they don't mind eating rotten meat. They don't like eating maggots. So they can make a meal out of a rotting sheep until there's absolutely nothing left of it. So we anticipate, normally you would expect to have that grizzly that night if everything worked right. Um, You didn't have to wait three days. They were there. even when you were out investigating the dead sheep, you, that grizzly was probably a couple hundred yards, a quarter mile, yeah. pass away, sleeping up in the woods, you know, sleeping off his big meal he had, uh, yeah. counting on waking up and coming back down to have another meal. Any any close calls with disaster with grizzlies? Um. For, as far as I have stories, no. Um, the, the biggest worry always was is that, that the cable, you know, when you were building these foot snares, I mean, you, you were the guy with the wrench. And, and I know right. you, you never forgot about tightening all the clamps and, and making sure they were snug because uh, any oversight like that and if that cable slipped and come apart, uh, you would be dead because it's just, um, I was colleagues up in Canada who have taken videos of especially grizzly bear releases. And that was another thing we had to do when we took them, when we released them. That wasn't that simple either because you had them in a culvert trap and we used to have a remote rope that uh, had a pulley system and we would tie it to the base of a tree and drive the trailer forward and, and the door would pull up and the bear would jump out. Now everything is, uh, you know, winch systems, more Mm -hmm. mechanical, there's even safer procedures, but very often you let that bear out, they would run off, but you didn't want any kind of uh, them to notice any human activity or move motion because they would immediately turn and attack. Oh man. (laughs) Canada who has some really wild video of, uh, propping up the old dummy, you know, with a broom kind of thing. And that same thing had happened. You let that bear out and that bear saw that dummy propped up behind the culvert trap. It would run 25, 30 yards and swat, just knock that thing all over before it ran off. So you could see what would happen to you if you weren't careful and if you weren't concealed. Um, the worst case indirectly happened is a government trapper and I caught a very large, about a 500-pound boar grizzly up near Browning, Montana, near the Blackfoot Indian Reservation. Okay. Uh, all the law enforcement, uh, Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks game warden, his name was Louis Kiss. You can probably find this on the internet if you do some looking. But Louie and another guy come over and hooked on, or we actually moved the culvert trap with this big grizzly and it slid it out of our truck into his truck. Oh. And I was at the trapper's house that 
afternoon we were eating lunch and trying to make this long story short, Louie and them took this grizzly up a drainage and Louie got kind of hot dogging it a little bit and he was up on the trap when they let the bear out. I don't know why he would have done that, but he did. And the, they forgot to chain the trap, this culvert trap down. So this big culvert has a grizzly going out the end of it. The door is up, which made it top heavy. It fell out. That spilled Louie off the back of the truck. He fell right on top of the grizzly as it hit the ground. Oh. And uh, the grizzly got Louie by the leg, and Louie had his handgun. Uh, so that was that was quite a, a Western event. He shot Louie six times, killed it, and he got a compound. Well, I, I don't know how the bad the fractures were, but the, the two leg bones in his uh, below his knee were uh, bitten through. Oh, oh man. That is wild. Their hide and head are, are up in the, I believe they're still at the headquarters in Browning at the Blackfoot Indian Reservation. Wow. Man. So yeah. I, that was, that gives me the shivers. <laughs> I've always, I've always thought that whenever I see those bear release videos, to, I would hate to be the guy opening that cage. <laughs> oh man. But I bet it was quite a rush too. I mean, it, was everything working with bears? exciting or were you glad to be done with it when you were when you were done working with grizzlies well i gotta tell you i was a young middle i guess a young man at that time um you always looked forward to the adventure uh, mm -hmm. every it was usually a different place uh, you're up in the forest and and you know it's like a crime scene you first you investigate you get to see what happened and hear what happened and then you were given the challenge to catch this particular animal and move it somewhere. So you kind of felt, well, I'm not killing it. I'm saving it. Yet, you know, in hindsight, it's an invasion of that grizzly bear's home. You know, when you drive yeah. up your sheep right. in there and, and it's public land. And it's kind of like, I don't know if this is right or wrong, but uh, this is what we do. But the excitement always kept us wanting to go back and, and, uh, and we were good at it. I mean, that's what our job was. And so, uh, it was a job when, when yeah. they called, you wanted to go out and you wanted to do it effectively, efficiently and, and save the sheep, save the bear and save yourself from any, <laughs> <laughs> and everybody went home that day and, and it was a successful mission. Uh, you know, we're ready for another one. That's yeah. Yeah. I, I got that sentiment a lot while I was reading Wolfer, just, man, what an adventure. And, uh, uh, really kind of, kind of a, a modern time mountain man type of job where you're in there, you know, I remember you talking, sometimes you'd be out overnight waiting for wolves or something like that. And, and just really living off the land for a large part of your, you're clocked in hours of work <laughs> and, and being, getting to know, getting to know your surroundings so well. Yeah. Most of the missions I ever went on, which is, I mean, 26 years straight of that stuff. I mean, day in, day out, holidays, weekends. Uh, most of the time when we went out on one of those two, we didn't go home at night unless it happened to be really close to the trapper's place where he lived. But 
Yes, mm -hmm. we had lots and lots of the government give us all teepees. So each one of us had our individual teepee. And so we camped out there from the start to the finish. And wow. Be about, I suppose, a mile from where we had our snares or traps set. Um, sure. It's really important to be there early in the morning. Uh, it's easier on everything and everybody, and it's cool. And, and temperature is a big concern. You don't want to get, you know, if you're going to sedate a bear and move it, you want to get it moved when the temperatures are reasonable and you don't want to overheat it and dehydrate it and all those problems. So it was always best to camp out and, and be right there where things were happening. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, this is probably a, a good a good time to transition here. We're uh, getting to the point where you really kind of had the biggest, probably the biggest moment of your career. Another predator that man had successfully driven off the land in the West. And uh, I mean, it's still, there were, there were, these critters were still around in Alaska and still in Canada. And even uh, in the uh, state of Minnesota, I think was kind of the last holdout in the lower 48 for uh, the animal we're talking about here being wolves. And that that really kind of became your biggest mark on on uh, wildlife in, in the United States. And uh, so if you're listening into this, you may be old enough to remember, you know, huge news back in the Oh, was it Carter? 95, 96, somewhere around there, I think is when, 94 maybe? 90, 94, the environmental impact statement was written for wolf reintroduction and 95 and 96 is when it happened. Okay, so so there it is. So 94 is when the, when the law was, when the green light, the legal green light was, uh, was uh, getting turned on and Carter was the guy, the boots on the ground... The legal green light comes through. The country has uh, decided they're ready to bring wolves back to the American West, the lower 48. I want to state that because we, we have always had wolves in Alaska. But down in the lower the western lower 48, we've decided as Americans at this point to bring wolves back onto the landscape. And Carter was the boots on the ground guy who, if I remember correctly, kind of got appointed to this, right? Uh, it, it was kind of your supervisor who knew you'd be the right guy for the job, right? Yeah, it was a little complicated. I was uh, still employed at that time. Then it was called uh, Wildlife Services. But I was on contract with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, Ecological Services Branch uh, and the section of the Fish and Wildlife Service headquartered in Helena, Montana, Region 6 at that time we called it. And uh, I'd been doing a lot of wolf control work with foothold traps and helicopter darting. So I was in a position at that time with a lot of experience on the ground. So uh, Fish and Wildlife Service asked to borrow me from Wildlife Services to go up and assist at that time the uh, or facilitate the capture of wolves to 
mark some of the packs, get some collars on them and so forth. So uh, I had no, I was part of, I guess, a team that was being assembled. But when I went up there, I, I thought I was just going up to help. Yeah. And uh, when, when you got up there, it wasn't, you know, w when we say up there, Canada is where uh, we, we sourced these wolves from. We ca captured these wolves and brought them back and, and reintroduced them into, if I remember correctly, it was Yellowstone National Park. And uh, I don't remember the exact area, but in Idaho, right? Uh, the Frank Church Wilderness uh, in central Idaho, River of No Return Wilderness. Okay. So, so it was just those two spots, right? Those were, yeah, those were... where the, the wolves were divided up and put in those two different locations. And uh, if you, you read the book Wolfer, you'll find out that that was all fine and dandy that we passed this law here uh, in, uh, in America where we were passed this legislation that we were going to allow wolves to come back. But uh, it wasn't such a warm welcome for uh, the guys up north that were supposed to be working with Carter. And uh, uh, Carter, one of my possibly my favorite story from the entire your entire memoir, Wolfer, is uh, when you get up there. And uh, you have to work with these Canadian trappers. And uh, they were feeling you out. See if you really knew what you were doing. And uh, uh, who's this uh, Who's this American coming up here to get some of our wolves? Can you kind of explain what some of that uh, uh, back and forth was like when you first got up there? Well, again, I, I went up to help. So I, I wasn't really involved in the early, you know, uh, contacts and communication. So, uh, yeah, I went up there on loan with Fish and Wildlife Service and sent to a little town called Hinton, Alberta, which is just east of Jasper Park. And I had some phone numbers to call and some trappers to contact. So I thought pretty straightforward. Everybody's laid the foundation. I just go up and do my thing, you know, whatever that's going to be. And, and I kind of walked into, you know, a hornet nest because of a lot of people had dropped the ball. There were contacts initially made, but no follow through. Mm. And several of these trappers up there, each, all of Alberta is divided up into registered trap lines. So virtually uh, all these public lands, whatever you want to call them, crown lands have trappers on them, but, but you had to have your a permit and you had to be a registered trapper and no one else could go in there. So these guys had, you know, allocated time and, and kind of held off on the wolves and they were ready to help because the U S government said, we'll give you $2,000 a piece, you know, kind of a bounty for live wolves. So when right. I showed up, uh, nobody had been talking and these Canadian trappers all thought the government, the U.S. government lied to them, and, and, of course, working through the Canadian government, they had lied to them. So they were very angry, upset, and felt betrayed. And, and so I walk in the door and say, hey, here I, I'm here to help. They're <laughs> 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 ready to punch me out. They, they said, get in your truck and leave. Get the hell out of the Canada. Uh, uh, you're a bunch of lying blankety-blanks and all that. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, I said, well, 
I can't leave. That's why I'm here. We, we need to do this. And so, yeah, we had this horrible uh, argument. Three or four of the trappers came over to this one guy's place and they were threatening me, intimidating me and uh, telling me to leave. And, and so then one of the trapping partners showed up late in the afternoon with two dead wolves. It just took them out of their neck snares. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so they show up at the door and I'm getting ready to leave. And the trappers just said, well, bring them two in. So they drug them in the front door and throw these two big black, black wolves on the floor and said, this is what we do to wolves up here. So I kind of got in an argument again. I said, yeah. well, you know, offering you 2000 bucks for a live one. Why in the world are you killing them? Well, you know, you lied to us. I said, well, I'm here. That's no lie. So after a bunch of debate, uh, some of the trappers left the guy where I was at his home. He said, well, do you want to stay and have dinner with us? Well, sure. So he and his wife offered me dinner. And then as soon as dinner was done, it was, I'll bet you never even skinned a wolf. I, I bet you never blah, 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 you know, all this uh, heckling me again. And I said, I've skilled, skinned thousands of predators. And he says, you don't even probably own a knife. And I pulled out my knife. I said, I got a knife. <laughs> it's good. Well, I'm going to have you and Brad have a skinning contest. And you're going to skin these two wolves. We'll see what you're made of, you know, that kind of stuff. So yeah. I thought, well, we'll go out to the outside shed somewhere and we'll skin wolves we ended up doing it in the living room of the house feeling <laughs> I was apologizing to the man's wife I said uh, I don't can't do this in your house oh it's okay you know so <laughs> wow needed to sit there I mean and you normally when you skin an animal you hang it up by, by a leg you know and suspend it so we're sitting there arguing for couple more hours uh, I've got a wolf laying on my lap and I'm skinning it out on my lap a hundred pound wolf and <laughs> and then the trapper brought out the choke cherry wine and so we got continued arguing drinking choke cherry wine <laughs> got your finger occasionally but uh, <laughs> and it turned out it was no longer a race toward the end but um, I got the hide off my wolf before the other guy did and nice. sleeping on the couch in my bloody clothes. Uh, they wouldn't let me drive back to the hotel because drunken driving rules, and they thought I was too sedated to be driving. <laughs> so anyway, I'm probably giving away the whole story, but the next morning uh, that guy decided, you know, this Carter guy's okay, and if he can scan a wolf, we can work with him. And uh, and wolf reintroduction was off to the races starting that day. We By that sunset that night, we had caught two live wolves, got radio collars on them, and uh, took them into the fishing game headquarters there in Hinton. And uh, you read Wolfer because there's a lot more to it, but that's the history of how we all kind of started working together anyway. How, yeah. do, you, how do you catch wolves? Well, uh, commonly it's either foothold traps or neck snares. And again, back to snares again, they're like aircraft cable snares. Cable size for wolves is like eighth inch cable, a lot smaller than what you'd use to catch a bear. Man, yeah. Um, In Canada, due to the time they prime up uh, mid-November, 
often there's snow on the ground and so foothold traps aren't used a lot up there as much as neck snares. Hmm, they sure. make these snares in openings, every trail opening through the woods, uh, put dead animal carcass out, you know, roadkill moose. Uh, they had a variety of dead animals that they could legally put out up there. And, and so you hang these snares, conceal them, and the wolf packs come in to get to the meat. Uh, neck snare slips over their head or neck. And it strangles them. Man. I, I, so listen, everybody, a lot of times we have gardeners, we have farmers, we have conservationists, we have a lot of people and our, our tagline is conservation one yard at a time because we all can do conservation. But here's the deal. Nobody try anything that's said today at home. I don't want a single thing being tried at home that's being talked about today. Carter is a professional and apparently one of the best. So Yeah, that and that part there that Nick just mentioned, that's that story that you told, Carter, the reason it's probably my favorite from the book is because it showed that you were the perfect guy for the job. Mm. Without you being there to stand in the gap, to tie all those loose ends back together in a way that was totally outside of the the training manual, if there ever was one, on on how to, you know, what's the government procedure on foreign negotiations with, you know, uh, wolf trappers. With wolf trappers, <laughs> how do you how do you get them to buy into your your program and and you know heal over these these wounds that weren't your fault, but you're just you're, you're the messenger who's getting shot, right? And <clears throat> Apparently and, the the trick to doing that is to send in Carter. That's right, and that's and he's that's the my, guy for and it. That's my point. Is is uh, this was such a difficult task from the beginning, and so then you know it was this would seem like a point where we could ride off into the sunset and say, and then Carter was able to start getting enough wolves for reintroduction Yellowstone and, and the Frank Church Wilderness, and and everything was happy and well again. But that really was just the beginning of a lot of conflict for you personally after that because people weren't not everybody was ready for wolves to come back it wasn't a you know this huge majority at you know the united states was begging to have wolves back there was a lot of people that wanted nothing to do with having wolves back um and people that you had to to deal with on a regular basis and work with on a regular basis and that's really where I kind of want to transition the conversation here is now that you got the wolves back on the ground, reintroduced, how did your job change from that moment on? Well, I always felt like that was this was my destiny to do what I did because um, I do enjoy people and mm -hmm. I enjoy a challenge. So, uh, I had a dad too that was good at communicating with people. So uh, I guess I was the guy in the right place at the right time for this unique situation. And definitely uh, it changed because I, I think partly because I started to change too. I started to understand the wolf better. And, and you know, the wolf was not a willing participant either. You know, we're, we're all living up here in Canada and certainly people up there hunted and trapped them. But you know, we didn't ask to be caught and taken from our family, and we didn't ask to be 
you know, processed and chemically immobilized and collars put on us and sent to a strange land. But nonetheless, once this whole uh, experiment moved forward, it took myself and, you know, and, and a lot of other individuals too, that uh, you had to be out there to explain it step by step as we went along. And like you say, uh, I, the majority of Americans wanted wolves back, but the majority of Americans don't live where wolves are or mm. won't experience right. their lives living around wolves. So then you had the people who, you know, livestock producers, they're like, you know, when a wild dog pack runs through our place, we just shoot them, you know, and the county sheriff will shoot them. You bring these wild dogs down and turn them loose in our backyard and tell us we can't do a thing. Yeah. And was early on as part of the conditions, you know, that until they become viable and you know, reach certain numbers, it is hands off except for government guys. And I was one of them guys who had to go out and still keep the peace, even with these uh, reintroduced wolves. Yeah. So I uh, thousands of people, I'm sure, in my life, um, community halls and uh, grange halls and the ranchers, of course, you know, well, you're, you're the Fed that brought them here, you know, so damn you. So yeah. catch it from them. Yeah. And then, of course, catching the wolves in Canada and bringing them down. There's a lot of wolf advocate types, environmentalists, who felt that you shouldn't have done it. You should have left them alone. And if they were meant to be here, they'd have come on their own. So they were mad at us. And when you're the face of the government going out and having these meetings, talking to people, uh, you caught hell from from both sides. In the meantime, you had to go out and, and deal with any problems. And the first few years when we had wolves on the ground, uh, we caught and relocated like 117 of them. We kind wow. of come out of harm's way and, and where they were causing trouble and started hauling them, you know, into the back country. So would, would you take a whole uh, pack of wolves? Or I, I guess I don't understand how you were getting them from Canada uh, because you can't just take five random wolves from five different packs and put them together and right. There's like a scent. They know the scent of their pack and they kind of, under, um, how do you get them to kind of agree or did you just take chunks of packs at a time? Well, it's a good point that we should back up just a little bit in, in, in Canada. Sure. Uh, working with the trappers, the first step was that we collared, uh, individual wolves in 17 different packs or the trappers caught them in snares. I, I immobilized them along with other team members. We put a radio collar on, released them. After we had these packs marked, then we brought in helicopter crews that used GPS uh, global positioning to find these collared wolves, know where these packs were living because the collared ones went back and joined their, their uh, family. And then the second stage was to go back in and helicopter dart members of those packs that we had marked. Okay. And to try and answer your question, if we caught, you know, when you fly in on a pack of wolves, you're not going to get them all. You're going to sometimes you're lucky to get one. But if we caught two or three members of an individual pack in Canada, 
the scientists, uh, Dr. Dave Meach and Dr. Steve Fritz and others who were kind of overseeing the distribution of the wolves decided that uh, wolves that were related would go to Yellowstone National Park. And uh, we called that a soft release because they put up one acre holding pens within the park. And those related wolves lived in those pens and were held for about uh, eight to 10 weeks in captivity. And in the other situations where we caught random wolves, just one here, one there, those wolves were hard released in Idaho. And that means put in a kennel in Canada, flown down and the kennel door was opened. And wow. them. But all the wolves in Canada, 66 total, all had radio collars on them when they were released. Um, 35 went to Idaho, 31 were put in Yellowstone. And from those 66 wolves that we started with, uh, we scientists estimate now we've probably got uh, 2,000 to 2,500 wolves now in this uh, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming area. But that that's wow. essentially how it was done. And um, a lot of steps in between too, but again, I mean, we're fast forwarding, but that kind of is what happened between Canada and getting them to the park in Idaho. Yeah, on yeah. places like Frank Church, Wilderness in Idaho, the things we were looking for as scientists uh, for the release point is uh, low human activity, a lot of open country, public land kind of environment with a real high ungulate. Ungulates are wild hooved animals mm -hmm. like deer, elk, and moose, uh, high population that provide the feed the wolves needed. Um, so the wolves thrived in Idaho and Montana, and uh, it was up to them once we released them and if we could keep the peace and and keep people talking and everything they could reproduce and and that's what happened and it was a huge success story if yeah. you like wolves right right <laughs> oh man which which that's that's such an important part to 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 throw in there and we could man we could go for hours on on the ins and outs of i have so many questions i could ask carter and would love to ask carter and um for sake of keeping it moving here, I'm going to kind of jump ahead a little bit to to play off of what Carter just said there. <clears throat> if you like wolves, inevitably, problems started to show up a little bit with with ranchers, and your almost your you, you kind of got your old job back, so to speak, but with a new character that you're working with. You were getting calls from ranchers, and because the big news is we got wolves every, what did it seem like almost every attacked sheep, cow, whatever, wolves were public enemy number one at this point, right? Yeah, there was a point there where I, I don't know if I coined it. I think I coined the phrase just because that's where I was working. I uh, called it wolf hysteria. Okay, yeah. There was so much publicity about wolves and, and talk of reintroducing wolves that, you know, before a stockman could drive down the road and he's got, you know, every ranch 
every farm has dead livestock. I mean, you, you see it, whether you're in mm -hmm. Iowa or Idaho or Montana, you yep. drive down a road and there's a dead cow or a dead horse or something. And, and most time people never worried about it. But then with all the publicity about wolves, everybody started having a second thought. Like, I wonder if a wolf killed that cow. Hmm. So yeah. It really gave me a workload because I was driving hundreds of miles a day looking at livestock carcasses. And right. nine, 99% at that time were not killed by wolves because there were no wolves. And what wolves there were were in some pretty specific locations. So, um, right. Yeah. So it, it, it just, uh, you know, it's interesting to this day because the wolves have expanded their range out of uh, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming. Now they're, they've moved into Washington and moved into Oregon and they're moved mm -hmm. to Northern California. Wow. And we've got a pair that just had puppies there in, in Northern Colorado. Yeah. And, and as, uh, history repeats itself because wherever these wolves show up in a new place, in a new state, in a new neighborhood and community, it's like starting over. So yeah, it's it's still an ongoing situation to this day that there's people who advocate we want wolves everywhere and the, the agriculture community and we'll have to talk about some point sportsmen too because there was this tremendous concern by sportsmen yeah recreationally hunt deer and elk and moose that you know these wolves are going to eat everything they're going to kill all the big game and right so that was another accusation you feds introduced wolves to take away our guns you introduced wolves to to destroy hunting in north america there's all these hmm. accusations on top right. of everything else i want to say it quickly here today in idaho montana wyoming there are more elk in each of those three states today than there were 26 years ago when we reintroduced wolves. Wow, that's so it crazy. It is a fallacy. It is misinformation. If you hear anyone saying, well, they put wolves out west and they wiped out the deer, they wiped out the elk, and they wiped out the moose, that is absolutely not true whatsoever. Mm. So, I'm glad I'm glad to hear that. At that's... some point before we quit talking here. No, that's an important thing to say. I, I am. Uh, I, I represent the the hunting community a little bit here on our podcast. Uh, I like to hunt, and I he, being in that circle, I hear that accusation often. And uh, I, I, you know, I've always thought that it was overstated, but I'm glad to hear you say that as somebody who who has been the person on the ground handling them, and and really, you know, it's it's still the same old attitude that went against those coyotes during a. Uh, uh, your early career where, you know, any predator is, is a bad predator. But these animals play a critically important role. Even if we can't see it easily, they do play a role within their ecosystem. And uh, it, it brings a fuller balance to that ecosystem when they're allowed to be back in there. And that's really where we're going to wrap this conversation up with. But I do want to make a plug right here, an important, a very interesting plug for Wolfer, the book that Carter wrote. Because um, when uh, Carter was doing all these examinations, which is really what they were, you had to skin out the animals, 
the to look and see what were the signs of trauma on the dead cow or the dead sheep, see if it was a signature uh, kill method delivered by a wolf and uh, or a bear or a lion or uh, uh, maybe something else, maybe even a golden eagle, as you can read about in one part of the, the book. Um, but uh, it, it was just interesting to see how you constantly throughout this whole phase, kind of like even in that first time up there in Canada when you had to make peace with the Canadian trappers, you had to adapt and you had to, to find, you know, find the truth in all of this and do what you were uh, both told to do, but also obviously there was some personal motivation through all this. Like you said, you enjoyed the challenge. You, you thought they played an important role within uh, the, the ecosystem of the West. And, um, you know, he kept pushing forward with that. So if you want to hear how Carter figured all that out, you got to read the book, Wolfer. And uh, it's it's just a fascinating uh, part of this, the book to me, how you figured out what kind of critter it was that killed the livestock. And there's also the motivation behind that too, where if, if the government trapper determined that it was a wolf that had killed your sheep, you got reimbursed, um, both by, I think there was some federal money there, but also some private funds from uh, a wildlife advocacy group, Defenders of Wildlife, I believe was, the, was that group, that would uh, offer repayment to the rancher for the lost stock. And um, so if Carter shows up and says, eh, that actually doesn't look like a wolf kill, that looks like uh, that's a calf that got stepped on by its mom or had this other illness going on or, you know, some, some big gash that got infected or something. They didn't get paid. And hmm. so there's a lot of pressure there on Carter to see the truth in only one way. And, and uh, I've, I, I've always admired you that you were willing to stand up and, and figure out if that really was the truth and take the beating that came, the verbal abuse that came when it wasn't what the rancher wanted it to be. And, and uh, based on reading your book, I think that most people came around to respect you for those same reasons. They knew you weren't a guy that could be bought. And so uh, I think that's an important part to, to call out here just on Carter's character. But Carter, let's tie this back here into Iowa as we kind of wind this one down. You know, our job here at Hoxie Native Seeds, the whole goal of the Prairie Farm podcast is to educate people on ecological issues in, this, in hopes of, of bringing back some of these lost um, these lost parts of an ecosystem, right? And we're never going to fully get there. Some of these species are either extinct or close to being extinct. And uh, new newcomers have moved in and occupied their niches that they've vacated when they were, you know, extirpated from our state. But if we're going to recover prairie, it's going to take more than just grass. You know, earlier when we were talking about the jackrabbits, the reason jackrabbits were able to call a prairie home wasn't just because we had tall grass. In fact, they didn't really like the tall grass. They liked having that tall grass mowed down because a jackrabbit's main adaptation for survival is its speed, right? It's open country speed. And the, the biggest lawnmowers for the prairie 
to give them those runways that they could evade predators on, or the the bison, and, and probably the elk as well. You could you could say would fit in there. They're eating a lot of grass as well, but these bison would create these this habitat that was suitable for the jackrabbits. And uh, when the bison were gone, there was kind of this almost this false this false security for jackrabbits because uh, farmers started to plant uh, small grain, you know, oats and, and wheat that were was a summer harvest. And it kind of mimicked what um, the, the bison did. And so actually jackrabbit populations exploded in the Midwest for a short time when we were growing uh, the kind of grain needed to feed horses. Well, horses got replaced by tractors and oats and wheat. You can look a long ways in Iowa to find an oat or wheat field anymore. And the jackrabbits lost their, uh, their clear running space, their habitat that they need, and now they're gone. And so we see from the case of just that one, that one example there, how these big animals, bison and elk, played a critical role for a fully functioning prairie ecosystem. Based on the, I mean, is there a better word for it than war that you had to fight with getting public acceptance of having wolves, this animal with a big impact on the landscape. Do you think there could ever be a situation, Nicholas painted this picture really well earlier when he talked about how Iowa is such a modified landscape. Do you think there could ever be a point where we recover enough of that grassland where we could have free ranging elk and bison and even bring in some of those predators like wolves again and, and mountain lions and bears or is is the change so deep and the battles that have to be fought for that kind of acceptance so huge that is there really no hope of ever fully recovering that part of what a prairie ecosystem is in your opinion well I'll go back to my college days um when you talked about land back in back in my day, back in the '60s, even you know, we talked about you, know, you learn about biological carrying capacity, mm -hmm. uh, a piece of ground, and you know, with food, water, and cover, you know, how many ringneck pheasants can live there? How many cottontail rabbits? Um, it was a biological thing, and, and as many lived there as could live there. Uh, Fast forward to gray wolves in the northern Rocky Mountain region right now and in your neighborhood, you know, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota. Uh, mm -hmm. Now we're talking social carrying capacity. It's mm. no longer how much will the land hold, it's how much will people tolerate. Yeah. Mm. Are being managed in the West now is that uh, it's gone so political. And the politics says, you know, and a lot of a lot of politicians, I'll call them that, and, and representing, you know, related to the ag industry, just said from day one, we don't want them, we don't need them, 
our granddaddy's killed the last one and and that's the way we should leave it be you know right so there's just that resistance and so now it's like well if we're going to have some this is only how many we're going to have otherwise we're going to hunt them we're going to trap them we're going to control them because there's only going to be so many wolves that we're going to put up with so then if you let's move to the iowa prairie um you not only have agriculture established for well over a hundred years now you got urban sprawl i guess i guess i'll call it you got people racing to get out of the towns racing to build their house a little bit outside the other houses and you know better than anybody living yeah. there what that's starting to look like so you got this encroachment this human encroachment the established rural lifestyle that's been raising corn and beans and livestock since day one of settlement and and then you got urban society all trying to get the hell out of other people's way and they're all moving out in the countryside so it's a long way of answering you saying that uh, it's gonna be tough and i as when you and i got acquainted the other day i was saying like you take a mountain lion that you know probably a mountain lion migrated out of montana went to the dakotas and now there's a population in the black hills and some of those lions i'm certain are slipping into iowa because you oh yeah yep. mm -hmm. maybe more than that show up there and there's this immediate need to kill that lion the law enforcement guys i mean when you see a law enforcement guy with a the sheriff's deputy shot the lion out of the tree. He's got a smile on his face. Look at me. I killed that lion. And, of course, you got hunters who say, well, you know, I shot it because I didn't know what else to do. And Iowa doesn't have a law that says it's illegal, I don't believe. So if you kill the lion, I don't think so. report it, you probably get to keep it. So you've got this lion who has traveled hundreds of miles through tens of thousands of people finding its own business from the Black Hills to Iowa, eating white-tailed deer, and nobody even knows it's around until, unfortunately, that cat gets treed by somebody's house dog, you know, or Fido sees it, smells it, cougar runs up a tree, and then law enforcement or a hunter or somebody uh, kills it. My, yeah. my bottom line is absolutely cougars can live in Iowa. They would thrive. They can live anywhere when you got millions of white-tailed deer. Yeah. Including all that Great Lakes country. That cougars would do just fine. But humans, I just don't see they'll socially tolerate their presence. The word liability always. Well, you know. Just like here out west, if a cougar or its cougar and its kittens show up around a school district, they kill them. Mm -hmm. Might attack a kid. So there's all this. What might happen if we don't kill that animal? And it, it mm. drives me crazy, too, because uh, these big predators, they can live among us. But I just yeah. don't think people are... I just don't... The politics of it isn't going to let it happen. Mm. Wish I'm yeah. wrong. Maybe I hope I'm wrong, but uh, that's what I yeah. hold on. Yeah, yeah. So much of this just just requires 
a change in perspective and a change and looking at the facts, right? Looking at what is the reality, because that is the reality that Carter just mentioned. A lot of times, every year we get mountain lions that come through Iowa, and a lot of times they aren't spotted until they hit Des Moines. And uh, he's right. Think of how many thousands of houses, yards, those cats have walked through. And, and uh, you know, bringing back large predators or even even uh, some of these these uh, ungulates, you know, uh, bringing back some, bringing back elk, you know, the concern would be crop damage and or bison, same deal, or, or traffic collisions, which are a serious thing for sure. But if we really want to see, I'm not sure how I want to word this, but if we really want to see um, conservation of the prairie played out to its fullest extent possible, I think we're going to have to be willing to make some of those sacrifices of comfort a little bit, mm-hmm. maybe put in that effort that's required to study it out more fully so that we understand it as citizens here so that we have a better perspective from the social standpoint that, that Carter mentioned of, of accepting these things and, and really having this attitude of, you know what? Like technically we're here first. They were, they were, they were living here just fine. Is there a way where we can find that we can make that work again? And I don't know. I don't, I don't really think I'm going to see that in, in my lifetime, but I have said on another podcast, I do think that we'll see some of it within, uh, you know, the next 50 years, even I think, uh, uh, black bears will be accepted again in the northern northeastern part of the state where we have some large forested areas still and they're coming into with you know almost like mountain lions every year there's black bears that end up in iowa in that part of the state i i could see that happening but we need to be willing to really look at what is it that we can tolerate what is a healthier landscape how much do we value having a healthy landscape and uh I really think that prairie, Nick, you can, I think you'd agree with me on this. I think prairie is kind of the hub for all of that because prairie is the habitat that we need back on our, our landscape so desperately and get back to some of those, those groves of trees and, and uh, the woodlands that would have bookended the state and been in the Northern part of the state at one time, start to see some of this habitat come, come back and, uh, be more mindful of how we're using the ground and uh, hopefully with a little bit of optimism there, maybe, maybe my great grandchildren someday will be able to see a wild elk again in Iowa. Well, you know, I, another comment I made to you earlier when we met too is just to me, it's a breath of fresh air to go back to my North Iowa landscape I grew up in and, and see there's a lot of people putting prairie back in up in that area. And yeah. Gosh, uh, <laughs> there's nothing prettier than 40, 50 acres of uh, wildflowers and, and hay meadow. And you can only imagine maybe it sort of somewhat resembles what the early settlers came upon. And it, it creates a opportunity for diversity. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. these monocultures of, of corn and soybeans uh, you know, treated with Roundup 
nothing's going to live there as Pico's. Uh, yeah. Few things do look out if the aphids come out because then out comes the bug spray and then look out ladybugs, honeybees, and fireflies. And it breaks my heart to know that all of them are going to get sprayed. So, uh, yeah, I wish people could get away from the maintenance thing. Uh, I see yards back there being mowed and it's like, why don't you put in windbreak? Well, you know, why don't you plant trees? Yeah. Why don't you all that ground, why don't you let it sort of return the way it was? Yeah. You need the and, farm groves, you need them dead trees. Uh, them dead trees are what woodpeckers need. And, the, you know, as a biologist, you just kind of drive by and troubleshoot and think, oh, my God, just everything's got to be mowed and neatly kept. And yeah. I wish people get away from that. But, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there's, there's something to be said that, in, in all aspects, life is messy, right? Not yeah. only our lives, but life, trees, uh, different plants and animals, different um, uh, coexisting. It, it gets messy because it's not neat and tidy. And, and yet there's something about our human brains that wants everything to be neat and tidy. Perfect rows of crops, perfect lawns in our front yard. And, uh, and, and while... Um, larger agriculture is, uh, there is a need for it, right? That's why civilization is able to be as it is, is because farmers grow crops. But uh, um, I, I think there's a, a phrase that me and some of my peers use is, is free and responsible, right? We have the privilege of being uh, in an incredible country where in many ways are just complete uh, free, unprecedented freedom. And yet, uh, in some ways that leads to being irresponsible. Um, and so we need to learn how to be free and responsible at the same time, or one of two things will happen. Our freedom will lead to our demise because we're not responsible with it, or someone will take that responsibility upon themselves and take the freedom away. And so you got to have those two come together. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to take that larger life concept and bring it down to something you were talking about. Uh, just our gardens, um, at Toxin Native Seeds, we have an initiative to be in 10,000 backyards before June 1st yep. of 2022. And, and what that looks like is whether it's 50 square feet or a quarter an acre, or maybe you have an eight acre area, um, we are looking that that prairie and wildflowers and native habitat would be put back in there. So if that is something that you are looking into, and there are tons and tons of tons of benefits, not just conservation. You're talking about less mowing. You're talking about better soil, cleaner water, um, bringing back butterflies. I mean, wouldn't it be a sight to see butterflies flying through your city? Uh, we want to encourage you. Check it out at theprairiefarm.com. That is theprairiefarm.com. You can look at different mixes. And even if you don't get mixes from us and you decide to get it from a local greenhouse or something, that is awesome. But that is our goal. Let us know that you're doing that so we know that they're there are backyards collecting native prairie that that um, this initiative is being spread. So uh, you can find any of that on the prairiefarm.com or even email at, email us at social at the prairiefarm.com if you want to yeah. if you want to ask questions or have any questions about what you can do in your backyard. And make sure you also check out everything Carter has for you to uh, uh, dream a little bit. Get a little taste of that adventure that he lived every day. But don't and, try it at home. <laughs> that's right, but don't try it at home. The uh, two books, I, I think, I believe it's two. Or have you done a third yet, Carter? 
No, I've got I've got an idea on a third one, but uh, I, I wrote a book called Wolfland too, which I think you uh, people would find very entertaining. Uh, it it kind of takes several of the field projects that I had to deal with, and and some of my I guess my favorite stories, my favorite adventures are in Wolfland. So uh, awesome! That sounds awesome. <laughs> and they're available oh, on audio now too. We went ahead and. Very good. So there you go. If you got a long drive coming up or you like re- listening to an audiobook while you're working out or, or riding to work every day, you can listen to it as well. Did you, you have an epic voice. I'm wondering if you voiced the audiobooks yourself. Uh, it, it takes so much technology to do the job that I did not. Ah. I would have loved to. And if I had nothing else in my life going on and, and able to make a thousand retakes, I could. Yeah. <laughs> Friend and colleague Joe Golden, who had a voice somewhat like mine, that he did a great job on them. Yeah, we self-published the books too. I mean, we we kind of self-published them. I had my wife Jenny is one, the primary editor, and and D Lane. So they're they're very, very cool. well written, and I've I had a lot of good people make sure that they weren't they weren't bad. They were good. Oh, it's one Wolfer is one of my all-time favorite books. And I actually went ahead and bought another actually I think I've bought two other copies to give to a couple of my friends that I knew would really enjoy them and both of them I'd say would put them on their top 10 of all time list as well. In fact, one of those friends was uh, pretty jealous that I'm having this conversation <laughs> with you today, Carter. So, uh definitely check out Wolfer and then also Wolfland. And is there anywhere else people can kind of keep up with you? I, I believe there's a, a Wolfer Facebook page or something like that that people can follow with. Yeah, I haven't been very good at maintaining my Wolfer page. But, yeah, you can go to that and uh, find information, old information. And if I can get back in the writing mode again, it might get renourished once again. Sure. And, uh yeah, I'm still doing occasional workshops out west. The COVID uh, problem has really messed us up as far as, you know, being able to speak to a greater public than, than I would like to. And sure. I just wanted to echo, too, I mean, what you're talking about, uh, Prairie back there in Iowa, and uh, everybody who's got everything from a yard to an acreage to, to farmland, uh, man, think about it and... and see how much you can give back to to what that land used to be Mm. Uh, there's no greater to me there's no greater beauty than diversity and and only when you start putting back the prairie and and that component along with the wildflowers and the native plants um i you know if everybody did that throughout this whole country there's tremendous amount of oh man see yeah. Stop mowing your lawns and stop growing bluegrass. Start growing. <laughs> That's what I see. Man, we may hire you as a spokesperson, Carter. That's exactly right. <laughs> you heard it from the wolfer. I wish I, could hold, I wish I could take this camera and go out. My wife and I have just under a third of an acre here in, in Boise, Idaho. And you drive into our yard, it's an oasis. Uh, we've got wild oh, flowers, so cool. all pollinator plants. Uh, milkweed don't forget milkweeds out there in that's Iowa. Right. man the butter monarchs need them and we grow them here in their yard and save the seed and give it to everybody that wants to plant some but 
our little acreage right here, our little third of an acre, there's very little grass, very little lawn, and the rest is for the, the birds and the insects, and people come here, it's like they're a little walk in the park, so uh, well, that's awesome. We walk, we talk the talk, and we walk the walk, and I, <laughs> I hope everybody back there does too. Yep, that's that's the way to live. Get those, get those yards turned back into habitat, and uh, uh, you get to enjoy the benefits too. You get to see those things. You get to watch them, uh, maybe even collect some honey or or uh, or whatever else. But but uh, certainly some wonderful gifts that are given back to us if we give back to the land. So. Thank you so much, Carter, for giving up an afternoon to talk with us. And uh, man, this was this was great and even better as I'd hoped it'd be. Amazing, really was. Well, appreciate it. I, I I just hope everybody gets a little more sense of adventure in their life, and uh, they can help create it if they just be tolerant. Mm. Yeah, I like it. That's that's a that's a great closing thought there. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in to the Prairie Farm Podcast presented by Hoxie Native Seeds. Remember, conservation happens one yard at a time.